verse 9, Acts chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given Through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. Let's us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. We ask that you would use it to open our, our minds, our hearts, to change us. Help us to understand it. Help us to obey it. And Lord, I ask that you bless each of us that are here in whatever way we need your help, your touch, your comfort, your forgiveness. And Lord, may you occupy our mind with the things that we've, we've sung about your greatness, not our own or anyone else's. Lord, would you show us these things and would they make you bigger and us smaller? And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. How many of you would say that you remember a television show that would have aired somewhere from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Some of you say, well, you've lost me there. Um, I'm middle-aged and I remember it. But this TV show was, was somewhat of a pioneer in that they were the first to give you inside access to the lives of celebrities. Take you inside their houses, inside their garages, and show you their Rolls Royce, um, big dinner parties. It had a host with a British accent. Some of you are nodding. This is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous.
right? Had its own uh, music at the beginning, and you knew what it was if you were familiar with it. Uh, kind of sounded like the love boat, but I don't know anything about that. That didn't last five seconds in our house, though. Maybe Lifestyles of Rich and Famous did long enough to laugh at what was going on. Um, but I had to look it up. When I thought of this, and having to do with, with what we're going to talk about, um, you can just about find anything on YouTube now. So I looked up the introduction when it would come on, and uh, complete with champagne pouring over a whole tower of champagne glasses, you hear the voiceover say this. Welcome to television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another dazzling lifestyles of the rich and famous. Meet the stars of show business and big business. Discover how life's winners live, love, and spend their fortunes. Enter the dazzling world of luxury on privileged tours of the fantasy palaces they call home. And then there's like a break uh, in the, the, the voiceover. Uh, with the music playing, you see this big giant yacht go by, helicopter takes off, and then a lot more champagne. And then he comes back. Uh, your host is Robin Leach, who circles the globe to uncover the stories America will never stop talking about. On this high note edition, meet blah, blah, blah. And then he always signed off the same way. You remember what it was? Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. I've never dreamt of caviar, ever. <laughs> I don't know if you've never missed the show if you'd ever dream of, of caviar. And really, you've got to have something to put that stuff on. Or it's, I don't really see what the big deal about it is. I bring that up and we laugh because we would probably acknowledge a lot has changed since the 80s and the 90s regarding the way our culture responds to that type of thing. One thing that I, I did laugh at as soon as I saw it because as, as the thing unfolds and as the narrator is saying show business and big business, none other than Michael Jackson and President Trump walk down this highway. He's featured on every time the show came on as big business. Um, looked a lot different than, than, a lot has changed. And so has our consumption of this sort of thing as far as media goes. Being that every American is at no more than arm's distance from probably a half dozen different devices that can monitor that type of thing 24-7. Here's what I thought might be helpful because we've got a passage about a guy who said that he was somebody great. We've been singing about the God who is great and thrice holy. But there's a problem in that we have the same sinful heart that would predispose us to not only watching that type of thing, but wanting to live a lifestyle of the rich and famous. I thought it might be helpful to ask, because there's really no place in the scripture for our being the hero. Jesus is always the hero. And we can get in trouble when we look at it that way. We're not meant to look at David versus Goliath and insert ourselves as the hero. This is for me to defeat my giants. No, Jesus defeated all the giants for us. He's, he's the hero. But think of that, the, the difference 
between a celebrity, lifestyles and the rich and famous, and a hero. Because we're getting closer to, to, to Jesus when we, we look at the opposite. And there's some overlap. This isn't always the same. Something to think about. Heroes are admired for bravery, for nobility, honor, character. Celebrities are admired for beauty, for talent, fame, maybe power. A hero prefers to serve without being noticed. A celebrity performs for the biggest crowd they can gather. A hero isn't thinking about status or recognition. A celebrity is looking for cameras and expects handsome compensation. A hero sacrifices for others. Celebrities enjoy others sacrificing for them, buying their books, watching their movies, going to their shows. Heroes understand their faults. Celebrities showcase their talents. Heroes deflect praise. Celebrities live for it. Now, it's not a problem to have celebrities in our culture. That's just going to happen. But it is a problem when a culture replaces its heroes with celebrities. And I think we're there. It's mixed up. We value the wrong thing. We look at the wrong thing. We pile up in a church and say it's all wrong. The only thing I want to do is make sure we remind ourselves again, we're in the same boat. We want the same thing. We can't even help it. If given the choice and we are honest with ourselves, it takes a lot to be a hero. It's more fun to be a celebrity. We'd probably choose the celebrity route if it were there on the ground to pick it up and run off with it. A lot of times heroism comes in the moment of need and it might even surprise those that are able to do it. But given enough time and our own choices over time, we'll, we'll pile up for ourselves recognition or wealth or whatever. They're not bad in and of themselves. Problem is, is when they displace the one who truly is great. That's the case study today. One of the most fearful truths in Scripture is on display in what we just read. And that is that some who think they are saved will be forever lost. And the thing that they've stumbled over is a replacement. It's a glory war. We've talked about this before. Uh, this fellow really is no different than uh, the rich young ruler. He, would, he might have been featured on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. He had his youth, he had wealth, and he had influence. But he did not have Jesus. And neither did this man named Simon, as far as we can tell. That might have been the most dramatic story in the New Testament, the rich young ruler with everybody watching. There's also the, the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares where you can't tell the difference until harvest time, that there are tares that grow up in and among the wheat. It's exactly what this passage is telling us. Hopefully these things will kind of prime the pump, get our heads thinking. The next paragraph next week uh, has to do with the Ethiopian eunuch. That is an illustration of genuine conversion. But for today, we have an example of a false conversion. And that's really the terrifying thing, that we can get it wrong, that there's a way to look and listen to the gospel proclaimed and then get it wrong and miss heaven. Remember the passage we spent a long time on in John where the people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. 
How, what does that mean? What does Jesus know that they don't? A lot, evidently. So we use this, this man's case. And let's see if we can't learn something. We'll just take care of the question right off the bat. Was Simon a believer? Well, I think he believed some things, but believer as in born again, I think the text is clear that he was not. Look at verse 13. Skip down a bit. We started reading in 9, but after the gospel had been proclaimed, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That all looks good on the surface. In fact, that is, that's plenty enough for some church to go grab the famous musician and let him give a testimony. I mean, this is great. Isn't that what we do? We usually fall all over ourselves, find some celebrity who's a Jesus fan, and uh, you know, we draw a crowd or something. I don't know that all that's going on here is genuine. So you'll have to be the judge. You're smart people. We'll study this together. If you look back at the verse, he believed, he was obedient to baptism, and he continues with Philip. But as we go on, there's something wrong. And here's your, your four points. This is how we'll organize the text. We're kind of going to skip around a little. But I've put them in order of uh, linear thought, even though we approach them as we walk through the text, um, each in its different place. But first of all, and we see this first, Simon was wrong about himself. And then we're going to see that he's wrong about God and that he misunderstands the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to see that he's wrong about his sin. He doesn't see it as Peter sees it, certainly not as God sees it. And consequently, he's going to be wrong about his salvation. You can't be wrong about who you are, wrong about who God is, wrong about what your sin means, and get salvation right. That's our premise. That's an impossible equation. It just won't work. It's going to look as if he gets it, but he doesn't. So go back to verse 9. Simon was wrong about himself. It's point one, and you can write down next to it. It wasn't all about him. It can't be all about him, but evidently it was all about Simon. Again, you be the judge. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, amazed the people of Samaria. He himself said he was somebody great. They all paid attention, all of them, least to the greatest. This man is the power of God, is called great. That's what they said about him. Again, they pay attention. For a long time, he'd amazed them with his magic. The part that I want to single out here is what he said about himself. Evidently, this man has quite the ego because you have to have quite the ego to let other people call your, yourself great with a capital G. Do you notice the great has a capital G? Now, depending on your translation, I know the ESV does because it's, it's a term that um, connects deity to this fellow's title. I don't, I don't know if you, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of things, you know, we all like uh, to have attention. We all like people to cheer for us. But to allow them to call you great with a capital G, that's, that's something. And that's what he said. He was saying that he was somebody. Um, look at how he uh, has a very strong hold as far as 
these people's opinion of him in verse 11 and 10. Twice they're amazed, twice Luke tells us they paid attention to him. And it has to do with his magic. Um, pretty sure it's not the little magic set you can buy at Myrtle Beach. I don't think this is sleight of hand. I don't think it's the rings, you know, you put together and the little thumb, you shove the bandana in. I think this is occultish, though Luke doesn't give us specifics here. In some of your translation, it might be Simon Magus, which is Simon the Magician. That's what he was known by. But his first problem is really everybody's problem. I want to be fair with this. He's a fine example of excess, but we're not off the hook either. Who doesn't want to be somebody? If nobody cared about that stuff, they'd have never had that show, right? And if nobody cared about it now, Facebook would have never got off the ground. Nobody would care about what celebrities have to say. I don't know why they care about what a celebrity has to say about an invasion in Europe but they think they're qualified to talk about it. A lot of them embarrass themselves. We're stuck on this stuff. Who's who? What's what? We're all in the same boat. We'd love to think we arrived. And is there anything wrong with having worked hard and having things? No. For all we know, this man missed the kingdom. But he didn't have to miss the kingdom just because he had things. No more than the rich young ruler missed the kingdom. But we know they walked off. We don't know if they walked back. I'd like to know that they sorted it all out, confessed Christ as Lord, repented of their sins, and we meet them someday. The problem wasn't that they were great, but that there was no place for God to be greater. Does that make sense? You might want to write down a simple way I know how to put it. It can't be all about Jesus if it's all about you. Right? All means all. I mean, it's all or nothing. Either he has the right to call the shots or you retain your rights to call the shots. A wrong view about oneself keeps an entire world from saving faith. I think think that's probably the reason. And it doesn't mean that you have to see yourself as some big-time operator to miss this. Uh, It's as easy as just believing, because it sounds really good, the gospel according to Oprah, that everybody's good on the inside. Something happens and makes them go wrong. It's not what the Bible tells us. We're all wrong to start with, and we need Jesus to make us right. If you don't get it that way, if you misunderstand yourself first, you'll never get lost And unless you're lost, you'll never be saved. It's a chain. So Simon's off, and he's off bad at the very beginning. We've all missed the mark. Our goodness is worthless, according to the scriptures. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Now that's Simon was wrong about himself. Simon's also wrong about the Holy Spirit. And you might want to write down next to that, he wasn't for sale. The Holy Spirit's not for sale. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, those of us that 
that have been around a church a while and sat through Sunday school, we know right off the bat that's an overreach. You can't, you can't do that. Peter's not going to let you off the hook for it. Uh, but before we get to that, we're skipping around in the verses. There's some that may have already got to this point but want to know, okay, what's this business about the Samaritans believing and being baptized but not having the Holy Spirit? And that's a technical uh, theological discussion where there's differing opinions. And usually when you have differing opinions among good men, you've got a passage of Scripture where we're not told specifically the answer to our question. Now, we've got a whole New Testament that tells us how it works. When you repent in faith of your sins and trust Jesus, you're saved and you get the Holy Spirit right at the same time. It's called conversion. It's a whole one-step package. But in this case, it looks like it's two steps, unless, of course, one of the steps is wrong. I'm getting more technical than I wanted to be, but let me tell you why I think there's a logical reason why God may have worked it this way, such that the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit on these guys was slow. Well, because of the background between the two people groups that it involves. We're talking about Jews and we're talking about Samaritans. You almost read over the fact they're in Samaria. Who were the Samaritans? The people Luke told us the Jews had no dealings with. Why? Well, because they were kind of half Jewish, half Gentile. It was, it was a whole big deal. They had their own place where they would worship. They didn't like each other. The whole purpose for the Good Samaritan was to show you that there can be people that everyone thinks should hate each other demonstrate that they're neighbors, the Good Samaritan, where the Levite and the priest failed. The Samaritan was neighbor, right? So if by means of the spread of the gospel, after persecution has come on the scene, you've got these rumors of people, Samaritans, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Jerusalem sends its two most credentialed apostles to go check it out. They pray, they lay their hands on them, Holy Spirit falls as it did in Pentecost, and there's evidence that they've got it. Here's what that helps with. Two groups of people that as up until that point, heretofore, have hated each other's guts. But now they both see and hear the Spirit of God speaking through them. There's more going on than Samaritans finding Jesus. There's Jews and Samaritans finding each other. That's a big deal. It would have been very easy for that to have happened separately and wind up with two separate churches right off the bat. Now, that's one way to look at it. Luke doesn't tell us that's what that was for. But there's other patterns when it gets to the Gentiles of kind of a similar stamp of approval through miracles or signs or sign gifts that I am the same Holy Spirit that was given to Jerusalem to my apostles to be witnesses to tell everybody. So... That said, and, and Romans has made it clear, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, we have any more questions, we submit them in person, in glory, when we meet our Lord and the apostles. Back to the issue of Simon, the magician. 
At this point, it's way too much for him to stand by and watch what seems to have been a, a mini Samaritan Pentecost, complete with manifestations. So he shamelessly offers to buy the ability to do the same. So doing, he's treated the two apostles as if they were fellow practitioners of magic and was ready to negotiate a price to buy this magic of theirs. This is not the way it works. And note this well. Simon did not ask for the Holy Spirit. He asked for the power to bestow it. As if that were something that could be bought and sold. Now the term simony was coined in church history to refer to the practice of buying and selling ecclesiastical offices. That you can't do that. And simony has been the word to describe it ever since this character gave us such a dazzling, bad example. Nothing God has is for sale. And without hesitation, Peter reacts. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now, J.B. Phillips has a paraphrase. It's not a translation. I use it from time to time on Wednesday nights more so than any others. Where it's the scriptures put in other words. Uh, him and others, likes of Eugene Peterson, the message, most of them are, are, were written to help their children. Uh, understand the scriptures. It's not a translation, but put into other words. His rendition of this verse is to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? I think that's accurate. If you look at the Greek, he's cursing him. You say, I thought it was wrong to curse. It is wrong to curse unless you're cursing someone on purpose. Because they need it, right? And you're Peter, one of the apostles. Uh, what he says makes sense. You are under the curse of sin, which God promised in the Garden of Eden would be destroyed by death. And Peter just says, your money's going the same place you are unless you get this fixed and, and repent Simon was mistaken because he thought his sin was a miscalculation. Oh, I've, I've offended you. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. No, his sin separated him from God. He was wrong about his sin. Simon's view of the Holy Spirit as a commodity to be purchased and added to his magic show was horribly wrong and betrayed his still lost condition because the gospel isn't adding up. The point here is that the work of the Spirit is not for our own ends. Never has been. Never will be. Now this is probably the point out of the four that um, we'd love to just move right on over and say, well, at least I don't have that problem. I think it might be the problem we have the most problem with. Because of our sin nature, we routinely misunderstand our sin, we misunderstand ourselves, we misunderstand the way God relates to us. 
And I think we're all guilty of simony to one degree or another. I mean, how often do we feel like this relationship with Jesus is meant to improve my my situation? When he's very clear, when when he got here, um, that's not what he was here for. To magnify himself? He's going to spend himself up. Um, sometimes thinking our way through this especially from a setting like a pulpit uh, putting some things out there are more easily able to be misunderstood I hope you don't misunderstood this stand this but if we would just take the time to analyze our own prayer lists I think we would uncover the pattern that a three-quarters of it are usually self-serving. You say, well, I'm praying for my family. Well, sometimes that's self-serving too. Again, the Bible's the one that tells us to pray over everything. But a lot of the time, it has less to do with the important, more to do with the urgent, and maybe a lot to do with comfortability, doesn't it? Um. I thought of one way that I might be able with some you know tongue in cheek to expose what just if we if we ever ever take the time to think through it might sound ridiculous. I've always wondered what it would be like to have one of those uh videos where lost people react to church people's prayers. And and kind of the stuff that would have been said out loud maybe in a restaurant somebody in the booth next to you is listening. Because we, we tend to put a lot of bible words in our prayers sometimes. And listen, there are people within our own families who s- say that kind of thing. So I know what it sounds like. You know what it sounds like. But what, what would somebody that doesn't know anything about this book think what we mean when we say, nourish this food to our bodies? What does that mean? I know what it means. It means, Lord, would you take the vitamins out of this food and allow my body to get strength out of them, which is something that he made our bodies to do anyway, didn't he? I mean, he's the one that made our bodies, fearfully and wonderfully made such that we can take food, chew it up, break it apart, extract everything of any value, and then get rid of what we don't need, right? But then here's the kicker. We'll drive through a window somewhere and pay good money for toxic waste. (laughs) And then we'll say, nourish this to our bodies, which is something that would involve a miracle because there's no nourishment in it to start with. Right? In fact, it might be better, Lord, forgive me for eating garbage and expecting the body you made for me to run on it. But we pray that stuff, don't we? Basically, it's, Lord, let me get supernatural efficiency out of this horrible fuel instead of, Lord, thank you for giving me the means to even have something to eat. I recognize and and acknowledge my utter, total dependence on you that without something to eat, I would die. And it's you who feeds the birds. It's you who clothes the lilies. It's you who give me money 
or family or anything else. I mean, there's a way to pray that just gives all the acknowledgement to the Lord. And there's a way for us to kind of check that box in front of people who are listening. And we say fancy things like that that really are kind of funny if you think about it, right? And then sometimes we get really down in the weeds when we ask other people to pray about things that really have more to do with our comfortability or whether or not I have to pay too much to fix a car I didn't take care of. No, that's the guy whose enterprising business depends on you're not taking care of your car. He'll fix it, but you're going to pay for it. And shame on you for asking the Lord to pay him less because you didn't take care of it. We could go on and on and on. We're like this. This shoe fits. And we know it. We wouldn't dare say, I want a magic trick to impress my friends with smoke and lights. But there are ministries that are built and thrive on that simony. And a lot of people watch it. And I hope we see through it. Because that's a wrong view of who God is. Number three, Simon was wrong about his sin. A lot of these overlap. He's wrong about himself. He's wrong about God. He's wrong about his sin. It wasn't just a mistake. We know it wasn't just a mistake because Peter says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Then he mentions gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Gall is stomach acid. Bondage of iniquity describes enslavement. So basically he's described sin as this harsh taskmaster. And this man is, is still very much under its influence. So this is not just a mistake. This is just like any of the rest of us who are born as guilty of the act of cosmic treason against the creator of all that is because we've sinned against him. So does Simon repent? What do you think? I don't think it looks like it at all. He seems to be more worried about his punishment than his repentance where he tells Peter to pray for him so he's not even praying himself. Let the professional handle this for me. I don't want any of what you've said to come upon me. Doesn't mean that he didn't repent later, but it doesn't look like he did right then. So we don't know. And then number four, Simon was wrong about his salvation. Because he was wrong about himself, because he was wrong about God, because he was wrong about his sin, he's got to be wrong about salvation. And it seems that he looked at it as a life enhancement rather than life itself. So you could write... Simon was wrong about salvation. It wasn't just a life enhancement. That's not what it's for. Seems Simon's belief in baptism was simply external. That he was happy to undergo the ritualistic things that came as part of what this man Philip was preaching about. An external enhancement instead of an internal transformation. True salvation is divine transformation of the soul from love of self to love of God. If we can ever switch over from loving ourselves to loving our God, it'll be by and through the new birth and no way else. And if it's pattern 
love of oneself, you can't, can't be all about you and all about God. And also, it's a transformation from love of sin to love of holiness. We've, we've got to hate our sin in order to love righteousness. Simon was interested because what he saw was right down his alley. Jesus had the same problem. The fellow says, I'll follow you everywhere you go. What does Jesus say? Buddy, you couldn't have made a better decision. Let, let me get you to sign this stuff. We'll, we'll get you plugged in. No, he says, birds have nests, foxes have holes. I hope you don't think you're going to get any more because I've got less. I have no place to lay my head. And I love you enough to tell you, if you're looking to follow me to get in on what it appears that I've got going for me, I'm headed for a cross where I'll give it up, all of it. So it's backwards. And what's worrisome more now than ever before is watching the church in America try to customize itself around the culture of America to try to pitch their thing as if it's right up the culture's alley. And it doesn't work. Um, You can't convert people pitching the notion that God is a life enhancement. Come to Jesus, he'll dot, dot, dot. Unless it's come to Jesus, he'll save you from your sins, correct your estrangement from his father, and make you fit for heaven. So what about us? We've been talking about Simon the whole time, bad dude. We hope we see in heaven, maybe what he heard listened, he listened to. What we saw doesn't give us much hope. What about us? We've been kind of talking about us along the way. But we could just take those four points we've looked at, turn them inward. Are we wrong about ourselves? Or we're, we're, we're inclined to be. But through the scripture, do we see do we see evidence that we're, to convince us that we see ourselves correctly? That it's not about us? That we're pitifully, hopefully lost without Jesus? Are we wrong about the Holy Spirit such that we're guilty of simony? Yeah, but does that affect our understanding of, of Scripture and the gospel? Are we wrong about our sin? Do we have any intention of repenting of it? There's no such thing as salvation without repentance. It's easier to tell the gospel without the repentance part. That's usually a deal breaker for most. No, I want to live this way. Bible says you can't. Who gets to say? The one who created you or you think it's your prerogative? And are we wrong about our salvation? Is our salvation considered an accessory, like a good insurance policy, or some sort of honorary degree in religious studies that we've worked on most of our lives. Makes us better people, moral people, tell the truth. It's a good way to get business contacts. It's not that. 
It's death in your place is what it is. I wrote this out. See if it sounds good. If we think that we are any better off than dead in our trespasses and sins, which would be a wrong view of ourselves, if we think that God is at our disposal as the galactic maid whose job it is to fluff our pillows of our comfortable existence, that would be a wrong view of God. And if we think that even the smallest of our sins are not fully sufficient as an offense to the holiness of God to have long since sent us deservingly straight to hell, should be a wrong view of sin. We'll never have a right view of salvation. But if we do see ourselves as lost, if we do see Jesus as our Savior, and we do see our sins as what he came to the earth to take away, then we see clearly. Now, when the Holy Spirit is present, conversion is genuine. There are certain things that you see about a person or a group or a family or a church that separate them from the pony and dog show known as Simon the Magician or others like him. And that's why I like verse 25 as the gleaming uh, bright spot of the whole thing and what gives us hope. Look at verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. People they hate. This is Peter and John. You know how today you can get in big trouble for something you said 10 years ago? It's the whole cancel stuff. Do you know that the Samaritans could, in that light, cancel at least one of these guys, Peter and John, who came down to the delegation? Because it was John and James, Luke tells us, after having been sent to Samaria... They were uh, told to go acquire some provisions. Uh, They were refused. Now when they had, excuse me, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, what, the refusal, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Give us what you gave Elijah the prophet and we'll smoke them all. That seemed fitting and right to John. And now he's stopping in every town on the way back to Jerusalem to give them the gospel. To where you'll give the life raft to your enemy as well as keeping it, instead of keeping it for yourself. Do you find it strange that Judaism never caught on in Samaria? They had their own thing. Jews had their own thing. But the word of God won them over. Broke their hearts. Not only did the Jews find Jesus, not only did the Samaritans find Jesus, but Jews and Samaritans, because of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they found each other. That's good stuff. That's the Holy Spirit showing what he can do 
with self-centered people who, who are their own best inner lawyer who can justify their sins and abuse the grace gifts of God, but he can use all of that in spite of themselves to share the gospel, the business for which he died. That's a sign that they'd gotten out of their own way. And the way they did it, it's a good way to close. We started the story with the description of a man who preached his own name. But Luke ends the paragraph with the description of what happens when a number of apostles preach the name of Jesus. Jesus saves. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story which opens our eyes to things we're inclined to do because of our nature. We're born with sin. But Lord, it also gives us hope that you're still in the business of changing lives and making us more like you. Lord, keep us singing how great thou art. Lord, keep us knowing that Jesus paid it all. Help us to share that message with anybody that'll listen. Lord, thank you for allowing us to get out of our own way. Lord, would you continue to remind us, though, the fact that we're, we're not glorified yet. Sin doesn't reign, but it still remains. And Lord, while you give us the strength to work through it, to keep short sin accounts, would you so choose to use us to tell others the truth, and to speak the truth, to live the truth. Thank you for our time together in your house. And Lord, would you bless even what we sing as we're dismissed. Would you bring us back next time for your glory and your honor. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.